0: Episode 122 Above Ground Podcast Scars with Benjamin Lerner. Disclaimer The host of this podcast, Timothy
1: Patrick and Will Foley, are by no means medical professionals. However, having lived experience with mental illness themselves, they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis. By sharing their stories, they hope to create connection. By creating connection, they hope to help you find your purpose. And through purpose, we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast.
0: Are you ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit? Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Above Ground Podcast.
2: Above Ground Podcast, because you can't serve below.
0: That's right. You down with TPP?
2: Yeah, you know me.
0: What's going on, Timmy? How we doing this week, buddy?
2: Doing. We're doing.
0: Yeah, we're we're all all doing.
2: Doing a little slow, but we're doing.
0: Yeah, I'm feeling a little sluggish myself. Um, We are joined this morning for another interview, and I am really, really stoked about this one. Uh, We are joined by... Songwriter, piano player, rapper, and DJ, uh, Benjamin Lerner. Uh, it's it's awesome to have you here, Benjamin. i um, thankful that you were able to join us this morning, man. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, man. I'm grateful to be alive, grateful
0: to be sober, and grateful to be able to spread the message of recovery. What can I say? Great-grandfather is Irving Berlin, which must cast a huge shadow on a musician like yourself, and especially a talented musician like yourself. Uh, I checked out like I checked out a bunch of your album "Clean" uh, on Spotify, and I watched some of your videos. And I was, I'm like, you remind me of Macklemore, so forgive the comparison, man. But that's the only that's the only thing I have to go on.
1: <laughs> Dude, Macklemore is awesome. I'll take it. He's a wonderful lyricist, and he's also incredibly open about his challenges with addiction and mental health. So. I, I will take that comparison and run with it. I play him a lot on my show and I love any rapper that is open enough to share about where they're at with unflinching honesty. And he always brings that to the table.
0: That is awesome, man. And I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't offend you by that. Cause I, I found uh, his lyrics. I found his lyrics to be very, very insightful. Like I, they his music is amazing. And then when I listened to your songs, I was like, I can hear the, like you have that similar delivery and you have that similar, that real, like I could hear a Ma- I could hear you writing a Macklemore song. If, if that's, if, if that goes right with that.
1: Well, Max, so, Max, a dope lyricist. So I'm sure he doesn't have any like real hip hop. So I'm sure he doesn't have any ghostwriting positions open, but you know, if any, if, if any hip hop artist wants it, wants to ghostwriter, I guess my services are available. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I'm definitely inspired by like, you know, underground lyricists and on the West coast, Macklemore definitely represents that. But my favorite thing about his music is, And any rapper, whether they're in recovery from a chemical dependency or codependency or any type of mental health issue, is that hip hop to me has always been about telling stories and talking about raw realities, whether that's, you know, the earliest roots of hip hop from the Bronx dealing with like the social issues of the late 70s, early 80s, like, you know, cool G rap. Um, Rakim, all those cats talked about what was going on then, and what I'm seeking to do with my music and uh, you know my radio platform and my columns is just tell it like it is in every sense. And like you said, you know, addiction of all kinds and mental health concerns usually go hand in hand. And you touched on the Irving Berlin piece, and I guess the best way to put it is that even before I was an alcoholic or an addict, I was addicted to approval. And I've always kind of struggled with sensory overload as it's come to be called my entire life. You can say a lot of different things. You can complicate it as much as you want. But the bottom line is that I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and I don't like to use labels too much because they're kind of limiting. But what it means to me is that I don't really know what people are thinking and I'm not the best at reading social cues. So I kind of snowball into this crazy over the top vision of the world, just kind of being out to get me. It's not so much paranoid as it is uncertainty, but that uncertainty manifests in compulsions of various natures, be they chemical or behavioral. And so on a daily basis, I have to find non-chemical ways for me to just detach from that and be able to center myself in the moment. So recovery in terms of chemical abstinence has done that for me, but music and words also do that for me because they allow me to ground myself in my reality and understand and break down what I'm going through in various ways. So to me, that's what music is all about.
0: That's awesome, man. And, and your music certainly speaks to that, man. Your lyrics are, are very, I mean, you know exactly what you're talking about. There's, there's no... There's no smoke and mirrors in that. It's 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 right there, full front, right in front of your face. And it's and it's and I, I have to say, you know, you it, it's great that somebody that has your scars can walk around and and think that they're beautiful, man. That line about scars being the story, like on a postcard. Like I was like, Yeah, that's great. That's a killer fucking line, man. No doubt about Thank it. Thank you,
1: man. I mean, I, I, what's interesting is that the hook came after the verse for that song. The verse I actually wrote when I was three years into recovery. And of course, uh, you know, my musical partner and collaborator, Dr. Joshua Sherman, who produced the album, we tweaked it a little bit. He gave me some outside perspective. He's actually a doctor. So we're both, you know, producer, musician, addict, and doctor. So he was played an actually invaluable role in the whole process, kind of giving me an outside perspective. And he's also done like some Broadway workshops and songwriting. So he helped to uh, tweak the poem, but I really wanted to make a hook that tied it all together and um, you know it's uh, it's an interesting line. You know, uh, tell tell the story of your life like a writing on a post writing on a postcard. But to me, what that means is like there's always an image, but then there's like the writing that goes with it in a personal story. And when someone sends a postcard, it's a beautiful image, but what they're writing is always separate from the image, and it's like their interpretation of it. So I wanted to give the image of you know the track marks and the scars on my arms, but also the story behind them. And um, you know, I got this tattoo right here. And uh, it's basically the outline of my worst scar from addiction, but be it self-harm or be it not even a scar on the skin, like you mentioned, we all got our scars, whether they're literal or metaphorical. And I had, um, you know, had this experience where I was a busboy for my first job after I got sober and, uh, you know, really just kind of reacquainting myself with the physical world, trying to deal with it on terms of, you know, non-chemical compulsion one day at a time. And uh, I was wearing long sleeves and I'm from DC, if you can't tell from my like, you know, non upstate Vermont accent. And uh, in DC gets hot as hell in the summer. And it was September because summer goes to October in DC. It was like 100 degrees, full humidity it's like you're walking through a swamp. And I didn't want people to see my arms. So I had these like button down sleeves all the way up. Then, you know, my hands start sweating. I'm not experienced in the service industry. I start dropping these ceramic plates. Everyone is like looking at me with this disgust and anger, including the coworkers, everyone like, you know, standing there, they don't get it. So I'm like, screw it. I'm going to like roll my sleeves up. And sure enough, I go inside to grab a baguette because it's a French restaurant. And within like two seconds, a server doesn't miss a beat because they're mad perceptive. And They're like, hey, man, what's up with those scars? And I froze because I didn't know what to do at that moment. Like, I had never been confronted with anyone outside recovery fellowships or like treatment centers or my family and non judgmental friends asking me. And, like, you know, I, I hadn't been 100% open about my struggle with the people who worked there. But I had a decision to make at that moment, which is do I try to like use my manipulative addict powers to like con these people and come up with a lie to like justify what they are, say it's surgery or something? Or do I tell them the truth and hope that they'll accept me? And I decided to tell the truth and I didn't do it for some like virtual higher ground type deal. Like, I'm not going to say I did it because like I was like on a moral stance or anything. I honestly did it because I knew that it was going to be more work for me to lie than it is to tell the truth. And that's and it was just going to be because in my addiction, I had to just lie so much intricate webs of lies. And I was just so exhausted and tired of lying that I was like, nah, I'm a recovering addict and I don't use anymore. But these scars are reminders to me of where I've been. And ever since that moment, that's kind of served as like a metaphor for the fact that if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, at least for me, like where I'm coming from, I don't want to speak for nobody else. But for me, if I allow myself to like bear my scars of all types, and I'm not afraid of the consequences. I find that although some people are sure are judgmental and they got stigma and everybody's got stigma or something and that's a form of trauma in itself. But I found that people are usually very accepting and not only that, but if I'm open about my stuff, they become open about theirs and they become willing to share because they see my vulnerability and see the strength that comes with it from that vulnerability. And it allows me to grow closer with people. So that's what the song was inspired by. And, uh, I'm glad you vibe with it, man, because that's one of my favorite cuts on the album.
0: Yeah, dude, it's very powerful, man. Very powerful stuff. I, I, I was like, wow, this is heavy stuff. Uh, we're, you know, we, we're big music. I'm a musician stuff. We're both musicians. Um, so the music part of it has always been an obsession anyway and i'm curious to know when you were younger and coming from the lineage that you came from was there a shadow that was cast over you because from if i if i read this correctly were you a like child prodigy is that that kind of the or is that sort of a misnomer of of things I mean, what,
1: I mean, what kind of person is going to sit, even if you're like Liberace and say that you're a child prodigy? I mean, right. that's <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> ego inflation. I, I can't claim to be a prodigy. I won some contests. You know, I was playing like full grade classical pieces when I was 12 and I was winning like juvenile contests. I never got Van Clyburn level, largely because of my addiction. You know, I had every opportunity, um, but I decided to pursue hip hop when I was 14, 15, more vigorously than I did piano. But I still won contests. I still got into conservatory. I still played performance level pieces, Chopin, 2s Beethoven, Sonatas. You know, and it definitely was, uh, I don't want to say a looming shadow, because my family never really pressured me that much. But really, the name association provided its own type of pressure. My parents were very nurturing and loving people. Um, you know, my dad was, you know, a stoic Harvard hippie who had his own like baggage. He wasn't an addict, but he, he, to this day, um, through my recovery, I've allowed, it's allowed me to connect with him on a deeper level and kind of rekindle our friendship in addition to our father son connection. And when he was up in Vermont, giving me the house I'm sitting in now, which he built, he said, I'm so proud of your willpower to be able to stay clean. And I said, dad, it had nothing to do with willpower. It had to do with surrender and acceptance. He's like, you know, I can never get that. I'm 100 percent willpower. I am 100 percent mental power. And I looked at him and I asked him, why don't you allow yourself to connect with yourself? And it was kind of this moment where, like, you know, your kid is asking you this and he's this like super stoic and hard body guy. He's like, I can't go there. He's like, I can't I can't detach. And it was kind of this bittersweet moment because I was able to, like, look to this man who I had always wanted to impress I guess that's the point here. I've always wanted to impress my parents. And it's not because they said, you have to do this. You have to do that. There wasn't any expectation like a family of lawyers or doctors or like experienced tradesmen or even musicians would already have because you know like, there's a legacy of words and music in my family. You know, you got Irving Berlin, but my grandmother, grandfather on both sides are just experienced journalists. Uh, my grandfather, my grandmother went to Juilliard and published an autobiography. My grandfather uh, was a syndicated columnist. Um, for, uh, you know, the New York Post before it got acquired by Murdoch, when it was more of like a journalistic empire, no shade, but, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And, absolutely. Um, so I come from that lineage, for sure. But there was never any expectation to specifically do anything. They just, they just needed me to be good at whatever it is that I did. And so I would play piano. and And at first, I wasn't that good until, you know, I learned how to like, kind of interpret it in a system of numbers. We can get more into that later, but it played into my Asperger's autism spectrum thing. I numbered my fingers and it was like unlocking a key because it was easier to view it in five fingers instead of 12 keys, like seven white, five black keys, and then the scales and the intervals. And that all came later, but my teacher was very conducive to like my neurotype and understanding how to like wrap that around my numbers obsession, my pattern obsession with Asperger's. But yeah man I mean I grew up with Irving Berlin uh, photos on my wall and like Oscar statuettes in uh, my grandmother's apartment but more than any of that I just wanted to prove that I myself was worthy and uh, people would say, oh you you got such big shoes to fill and it wasn't even like I knew I wasn't gonna be Irving Berlin. I mean you can't live up to that. that's 5,000 songs, Oscar winning songs, movie scoring songs, Bing Crosby tap dancing songs that ain't me? But what's interesting is that, you know, even though the classical piano thing, because of course, even though he's not a classical pianist, Irving Berlin writes a lot of beautiful piano songs. What I found I more closely followed his trajectory was actually the hip hop stuff, because if you really kind of deconstruct where Berlin was coming from, he was kind of a cultural measure. He went up to Tim Pan Alley in the Bronx in the early 19 teens, and he started writing ragtime. His first songs were not in, like, conventional pop and, like, early standards of, like, the 19-teens and the 20s. They were ragtime. And ragtime was kind of like the early jazz and I don't want to say hip-hop, but it was swing. It was syncopated. It was countercultural. I mean, it was Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, if you really want to deconstruct it even further, the second Harlem Renaissance and the second Bronx Renaissance was hip-hop. Yeah, absolutely it was. And so people think that hip hop is out of Irving Berlin's wheelhouse. But I like to think he would have got a kick out of it, man, because he was going out of his comfort zone, little Jewish kid from the Lower East Side going up to the Bronx to be part of that African-American musical culture and revolution and incorporating it into his work and meshing it with his Russian folk songs and those modes and that music. And so when I got exposed to hip hop and the hip hop culture of D.C., I mean, You know, a lot of people use the word cultural appropriation, and I have my own thoughts on that. I want to always be respectful and deferential of the original form of hip-hop. But I will say that allowing myself to, like, fully embrace and understand the culture of DC and, like, be part of that hip-hop scene, it served as a kind of therapy for not just, you know, my trauma, not want to say trauma, but the pressure I felt growing up. But it allowed me to find my own identity. And it allowed me to kind of separate from that Irving Berlin pressure and familial pressure and really be like, nah, this is me. And a way the classical piano didn't ever do. And um, it was amazing to be able to meld those two musical sides of myself together with this album. Cause it was kind of like a final closure where all that pressure I experienced and then my love for hip hop and the liberating thing all coalesced and came back together. So it was a beautiful watershed moment where I was able to reconcile those two differences and, like I say man I think I think Irving would
0: get a kick out of it because he was always about mixing music together. Yeah man I can tell that I just by the way you talk about your passion for hip hop and just and and what your what your next footing in history is and your familial history because you're obviously adding to it. But I really want to touch on the mental health part of it and I don't I'm not very familiar with Aspergers. I've heard of it. I don't know exactly what it is. And I'm really interested to know how that has played into how that, if that, when, how that played into your addiction and, and, and when did the addiction start? Did you just start, you know, was it starting to smoke weed and then things escalated or was, was it alcohol? Was there, there's obviously an entrance in there somewhere. And obviously in hip hop culture, we know what hip hop, I mean, you know, what commercial hip hop culture is. It's, you know, 40s and and stuff. And I'm not trying to, I'm not not trying to minimize it at all, but we know that popular music wise, that's what we hear all the time. So I was just curious, I'm curious to know, is that, was that your introduction or did you start dabbling earlier? Like how does this all coalesce together?
1: So let's, let's deconstruct it and get to the mental health piece and the chemical thing, because they are completely intertwined. And I actually addressed it on the first song of Clean, Performer which I basically just tried to encapsulate with my rant about my family and, you know, the different pressures and how hip hop allowed me to escape. And the first line of performer is I'm a performer in the world as a stage. Every conversation I have and every word that I say is pre-rehearsed inside my mind while I purposefully try to get approval from outside in an absurd little game. Um, And what that means is I'm a patterns guy and Asperger's takes different like tax and different people. It expresses itself in different ways. I mean, there are people with autism who literally can't communicate verbally, but they can build incredible structures. Um, Like, a good way to talk about it is if your kid can't talk by the time they're three, but they can take Playmobil or Legos and build incredible structures or draw at the level of like a 15 year old art student at a specialized high school, they might have a little bit of a leaning towards Asperger's or, you know, autism, whether it's functional or not. And the way it manifested for me is, I have never felt comfortable looking people in the eye. And people think that, you know, it's because I'm antisocial and you can call it that. But what it really is, is that when I look people in the eye, I get an overwhelming gaze into their, I don't want to say soul, although I do have a spiritual component of my life, but I get an uncomfortable dose of human emotion. And it is so off putting to me, it is so unnatural to me that it literally like causes shock waves of pain and tension to like move through my skull and uh, send shivers down my spine. Because in my very essence, I'm afraid that I don't understand people. Like I look in people's eyes, it's so disarming. So forgive me for saying this, but even while we're doing this Zoom, I'm looking at my own reflection and it's because I don't want to get thrown off. It has nothing to do with you. You guys are cool. It's got nothing to do with you guys specifically making me uncomfortable. It's that whenever I peer into another person, I am so afraid that they're not going to see me, that I'm going to make a mistake, that I don't get who they are. Um, that I just go into my own world. And if you look, I don't really know Latin that much, but I've been told that like, you know, the same way automaton automatic is like kind of self-sufficient, self-contained moving on its own. Autism has kind of the same root. It's self-contained. You're in your own bubble. You're not looking at other people. You're incapable of connecting with people. And I always tell people I'm a pretty sympathetic individual. At least I try to be, but I am not empathetic naturally at all. Um, If I see someone who's crying, I approach them from my own understanding. I find it very hard to connect with people. I find it very hard to break myself down and put myself in other people's experiences. I have to do it all mentally. None of it's natural. If a normal person walks into a room and they see like a social situation, they're like, oh, this is how I go. And it's just kind of natural. And everybody has anxiety. Everybody's got their own trepidations. But I always used to be so jealous of kids growing up who could just weave their way and know the exact right way to approach stuff, know the exact right tone. But when I got tired of like only having one or two friends and like, you know, being the outcast and like not getting invited to the pool parties, whatever you want to talk about, I developed a system the same way I developed a system with the piano. And that was, I analyzed speech patterns, slang patterns, like a robot, like an AI algorithm with a face, and I develop my own system for coping with social stuff. And so whenever I go into a new social scene, you can peep it. I sit on the side, I don't say a word, and I systematically study down from the facial expressions of the body language, to the tone of the voice, to the slang they use, to how formal, informal it is. I always take that time. And people are like, why damn, why is he so socially reserved? It's because I'm peeping it out. And I'm not judging anyone like in a malicious way, but I am judging. I am I'm I'm looking at people from an objective lens in my context and previous understanding. And it's basically flipping the whole Asperger's piece and using it to my advantage because I decided if I'm gonna have this, if I'm gonna be limited by this, I might as well draw on the hypersensitive, hyper acute powers of observation that are pinning me down and making me trapped within myself to better understand. So I started using that to connect with people socially. But I found that even though I did that, there was still this burgeoning tide of conscious emotion that I couldn't shut off. And the closest thing I got to shutting it off was like Pokemon cards, video games, forms of obsession, forms of material obsession and things that would allow me to detach because Pokemon cards is a fantasy world separate from me. I don't have to think about me. Video games is a fantasy world. I don't have to think about me. And the first endorphin rush I ever got actually didn't come from a bottle or a bag. It came from skateboarding. And that was my uh, first, you know, form of endorphin endogenous morphine release was dropping it in a skate park and doing all that stuff. And I never got that good, but I loved it, man. I was never good at any sports. Wasn't a ball sports guy because I don't got that team mentality. Um, but you know, I started skateboarding and up until that, that was like 12, 13 when I got serious about that. But then the big skate park in my town closed and I didn't really have any like outlet. I had the piano, but it wasn't, you know, that was my discipline. It wasn't my passion. Um, and I had never had a drink before with the aim of changing consciousness.
0: I'd had a That's that's the big thing right there is the changing of the consciousness. It's that chemical rush of, of being able to change and shut off your mind.
1: Yeah. And, and I had had a sip of like champagne ceremonially. I'd like, you know, snuck a taste of my parents' drinks known to them and unknown to them, just kind of like them trying to give me a taste for it. They didn't know I was an alcoholic. They're very cosmopolitan European classy at the time, you know, but I didn't know what it did, and I didn't have any expectation doing it that it would change. But, you know, over the course of the dinner parties, I started to notice a pattern. I was like, hey, this is, this is doing this to me. And uh, I like the way that feels. And uh, But it was only just a couple sips here and there. And then I was about 13, and I went over to my friend's house, and uh, he was like, hey, want a drink? I got like a six-pack of beer that my parents don't know is missing, and it was cobwebbed, and it was lukewarm. It was out of a refrigerator in this dark and musty corner of his basement. And, um, you know, I took that dark and musty sixer and I split it with my friend and um, I was really stressed at the time. I was like seventh or eighth grade. I just just starting to like grow and develop, just starting to, you know, become attracted to girls and like, you know, want to do that. I had no idea how to connect with women. I had no idea how to connect with my peers and like, you know, grow socially. And at that critical moment, you know, when the skate park had closed. When I was dealing with the beginning of my, you know, performance piano deal, and I was a, you know, kind of like empty shell of a forming adolescent. It was just this instant snap. And all of my Asperger's anxiety, all of my sensory overload was just equally, perfectly flatline medicated. And I was like, this is it. This is what I have been searching for my entire life. Now I understand why adults drink. Maybe everyone is like me. Maybe they don't all have Asperger's, but maybe everyone feels the same way that I do. And it was kind of like the alcohol served as a magic bridge to connecting with people. I didn't feel scared when I looked people in the eye. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was like on the verge of a nervous breakdown from sensory overload. And I, and I chased that feeling for you know, 10 years. Um, and at first it was mad suburban, you know, I would, I would drink too much and I would miss a track meet. I would get an F on a test. I would get a bad score on a piano judging. I would smell like cigarettes and weed, um, hanging out with my piano teacher who was also a church organist. And he'd give me a sideways glance and tell me he actually, to his credit, he actually says like, no, I don't, I don't like any of this smoking, but if you're going to smoke before, before our lessons, make sure you smoke the exact amount of same time when you're in this exact same amount before you do a judging, because your hands are going to be be shaky in the same way he was very pragmatic about it but he didn't like it and uh, he saw it as like a necessary evil um but as it escalated you know i kind of justified uh, the worsening of the consequences by the fact that i was becoming more and more comfortable with myself and uh, the comfort i felt mentally um the fact that i did wasn't scared to look people in the eye anymore the fact that i was able to go out and do social forays and connect with all these different circles of people um, it justified it to me and I and, and all of the peers that I had were drinking and using more than me and I used that to justify it too and before uh, you know I, I, I could go on this feel forever but the one thing I do want to touch on as you said like you know hip hop, the mainstream culture, of hip-hop is all about you know chemical escapism and I totally agree with you uh, in a lot of ways and uh, you know, the culture does embrace that. But what I will say about hip hop is that hip hop, regardless of whether it's new cats, like, you know, Roddy, Rich, Young Thug, Gunna, talking about Promethazine coating, cop syrup and Oxys, Gucci Mane before that, Future, you know, um, Lil Wayne, like Birdman, all that. um, Or it's like old school cats, you know, talking about selling weed on the corners of New York, like Rakim and Nas and like sipping 40s, like in that old school sense. Hip hop's a product of its environment. And a lot of these people who people are saying, oh, they're just arbiters of this like drug-induced swag. They're turning our kids on to drugs. I choose not to see it that way. And the reason I choose not to see it that way and see it as destructive is a lot of these people, especially the people who have gang ties and checkered criminal pasts, they got trauma and they're medicating their trauma too. And a lot of these people who are sensitive musicians and poets, even though they got face tats and gang affiliations, they're hypersensitive people too. And I could go on a long diatribe about the like, you know, the divide between a white and African-American and BIPOC like mental health care in the nation. But it's incredible to me that like, you know, um, when a white artist or someone talks about their mental health struggles, they get celebrated. But when, you know, a hip hop artist like from the streets who's got a face tattoo and, you know, like a gold chain tries to get vulnerable and talk about their addiction, they're seen as a monster for it. So I just wanted to put that out there and say, like, you know, um, I know you I know that's not like where you're coming at it from but I hear you you're very like deferential and respectful I am not saying you you came in it that way at yeah, all but no, I just want no. to make sure that cuz I run a sobriety hip hop show and I'm like a white rapper and I just want to make sure that I'm I'm not dissing people who are making drug centric music at all I made it for years in my active addiction but what I will say is that drug centric hip hop music is also always a symptom of a greater underlying mental health issue That hasn't been addressed because when i was making my drug-based hip-hop it was because i wanted to glorify the one thing that allowed me to escape from my mental pain
0: yeah and i and that's not where i was getting at with the culture reference man oh no
1: that's why i wanted to say that just like i know that no
0: because i you know i it's taken me a long time to you know i'm a i'm 49 years old and to me what hip-hop is to you was what like the 80s hard rock scene was to me and when you look at bands like motley Crue and all those bands that you glorify they did all these things too and it just happened to be in in that form of music so i know and i understand there's a way you know the culture of it i understand that everybody has trauma and all that stuff and i'm i'm interested to see what timmy has to say on this
2: well i I was just going to say that the the real gateway drug is trauma you know that's that's the beginning of of everybody's got trauma. Everybody's got uh, you know anxiety to some level. Everyone's got depression to some degree. It's just a matter of of kind of accepting it and, and understanding it. Um, but I kind of wanted. I, I love the story so far, uh, Benjamin. I I actually relate a lot. I've I've been told that that uh, I myself is Aspie as well. <laughs> Um, just because I'm, I'm a big sensory guy, huge sensory guy, um, for years I, I could never really um, distinguish it. And, and I was talking to my therapist about um, being, being like overly anxious when I get out of the shower and, and I'm in the bathroom. She was trying to go through things, and I said, well, there's a fan that o- automatically comes on when I turn the light on. And it's that, you know, it's not extremely loud, but it's loud enough. And for some reason, when that fan is on, I can feel it to this day. Now I can pay attention to it. And I can feel my body just tense up because of that noise of the fan. Yeah. So I can, re- I can relate to you on that. I, I do want to ask you, uh, go back to when you were in the, um, the restaurant and you first were um, approached about your scars. I'm, I'm just curious on how that person, other person handled it and and, and then kind of how you handled it you know, on top of what they did.
1: They were supportive. Um, I could kind of tell that they had had some exposure to maybe a loved one or like a friend who had suffered from addiction. And most people have. Um, I mean, with the alcoholism and the opioid epidemic, everybody's touched in some way and whether it's an acquaintance or someone they know like a church or like from their local group or something, Like everybody's got someone and a lot of people have someone in their family or a close loved one, especially in heavily impacted states like where I'm at. And also the upstate region. I mean, you can't drive through upstate without seeing like a poster. Like I saw a huge billboard in Washington County near like Cambridge, like the year I moved up, which was like driving under the influence of opioids is like drunk driving. Like we will prosecute that. You can't do that. And I was like, that is, that's heavy. That's it's everywhere and you can't stop it. Um, but By saying that, what I mean is I made the decision of being honest with people about my addiction. And that's what my platform is all about. And uh, before I had a radio show, before I really got back to making music, because I never really stopped, um, but I took a break uh, because I wanted to live my life and I wanted to get clean and I wanted to like deal with my underlying mental health issues, which was a two and a half year journey in itself. And what that moment really did when that person accepted me and they, they, they didn't have any motivation to like be accepting and nurturing. They, they, just, they were just being them. And because my family has motivation, they want to keep me alive. My treatment circle and my like recovery fellowship has motivation. They want to keep me coming back and keep me in the program because that's keeping their recovery going. Um, but this person didn't have any of that. They weren't in recovery, but just their compassion and their understanding allowed me to get outside of myself and feel comfortable taking more chances. And at the time, I was a busboy who was living with his mom. And, uh, you know, I started thinking maybe there is a chance that even though I have a history of addiction, that I am going to be capable of taking risks, applying for better jobs and moving forward. So it was at the same organization, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, like a casual restaurant I was working at. It was like a very like expensive, refined, like French suburban bistro. And normally you have to have like three years of service experience before you ever like become a server there. And, um, I was actually you know one of the first bus boys um that they made into a waiter and the reason is that i literally memorized the entire menu word for word and it's not just like the menu like on the on the cart you get like when you sit down at the table but like the chef descriptions i could tell them all 34 ingredients in the pate and how it's made and like stuff like that and that's again the asperger's using it to my advantage i had to reframe my anxiety and my obsession and uses my advantage And uh, they said, wow, you like really want this job. And I said, yeah, I I really want this job. And again, that's the addiction and the recovery to my advantage because I'm hungry. I want to get my life back. I want to move forward. And I don't care because I dropped out of college, but I wanted to get my life back. I wanted to pay for my own apartment. I wanted to have the resources to navigate life and move forward in my recovery. And that moment where someone was accepting of me made me think that even though I had been through all that stuff. Even though I had been through this horrible addiction, burnt bridges with my family, completely detached from reality. Like it got so bad that I was like, you know, lancing abscesses with dirty needles and smoking like uh, half smoked cigarettes off of the street. It got bad. But the worst consequence of all that was that I didn't know who I was anymore. Like I was so far gone from my own understanding of myself. And I had medicated myself so long that the anxiety came back 10 times worse than it ever did because I had been like trying to shove it down with with heroin and cocaine for so long that I didn't know it was possible to live an unmedicated life. I didn't know it was possible to live life on life's terms. And so every single time that I showed someone my scars, metaphorical or literal, and they allowed me to move forward like my boss, like when I became a waiter and then crazily enough, in recovery, became a bartender because it paid better. And I, he asked me, he's like, you've been telling people around here that you're a recovering addict. You're going to be in charge of a cash drawer. You're going to be in charge of like, you know, doing all this stuff like at the front of the restaurant. You can't crack up. You can't lash out. You can't do any of this. Like these are clients that spend like upwards of 50,000 here a year. Like you can't do that. And I just looked at him and said, well, and I guess you got to decide whether or not you're willing to give me a chance. And then he shared about his friend who would struggle with addiction. And again, my openness and my willingness to break myself down resulted in vulnerability, and it resulted in people giving me a chance. And yeah, I'm still I'm still apprehensive to tell anybody that I have scars. I'm still apprehensive to tell anybody that I'm not perfect, that I struggle with Asperger's, that I struggle with addiction. But again, Every single time that I became willing, even if people were a little bit apprehensive themselves and even if they had their own stigma, like my boss didn't want to put me in that position. But by continuing to be honest, by continuing to be open about my mental health struggles, he thought I think he thought, well, at least this person's being forward with it, because the thing I say to employers who are giving addicts chances is, yeah, they got a history of addiction. There's probably some co-occurring mental health issues there. But every single other person who doesn't have addiction, not only you don't know what baggage they're coming with, you don't know what they've been through. But they're probably not actively working on their mental health issues in the same way. And of course, that's a gross generalization. But the cool thing about recovery is that it allows you not just to confront your chemical compulsion, but the underlying issues in a completely head on and accountable way. So even though I did struggle with heroin addiction for years, the fact that I'm in recovery, and like you say, there are a bunch of types of recovery. It's not just sobriety fellowships. There's recovery from mental health. There's recovery from trauma. And I touch on that on my show. But I was working on that too. And I think that he came to see through my trajectory that it was possible for an addict to work in that capacity. And I want to give a shout out to every single employer who's willing to work with people who struggle with addiction issues, people who struggle with trauma because by him giving me that chance, I was able to move forward. And I don't think employers that give addicts a chance get shouted out nearly enough in a positive way. It needs to happen. And I'm so grateful that I was able to show people my scars and they were able to be open to it and give me that chance.
2: What, what do you, I, am from what I'm hearing, you have, uh, tremendous insight. You know, what do you, is there, is there anything in particular that you can attribute to that? In terms
1: of, uh, what, like, like rapid fire verbal type thing or, uh,
2: um, no, just with, with, with your own self, you, you're, you're able to look within and kind of, kind of put pieces together and, um, and understand it though at the same time. And then, you know, you know, through the healing process, you can, you know, kind of, I guess, fix it and grow.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that when I first went to treatment, there was this guy, it was kind of like this uh, spiritual program in uh, Northern Maryland. And uh, there was this kind of thing where they prompt you to like have a spiritual experience. They don't say it like that, but you meet with like a spiritual advisor and all that stuff. And I was so guarded. I was, I was not ready to get sober. It was in 2012, four years before I got sober this time around And I was using all of my cognitive capacity to shield myself and to make it so that this incredibly intelligent, spiritually aware person could not permeate my shell and could not sway me off of my path. And he kind of studied me and he's like, you know, it's often been said that the most quick thinking people who are always in their heads are going to have the hardest time in recovery. And you can think very fast, but the question is, are you going to use your fast thinking to your benefit, or to your detriment. And he kind of gave up on reaching me at that point, because he he realized that I was using my power of thought to justify my addiction. And I was, and I guess, uh, in regards to insight, instead of trying to use my cognitive capacity to con manipulate, and uh, go around the backs of people that I love to get another dollar for another high. And um, you know, do, it's hard to live a life as an addict. It's a lot of brain power. It's a lot of walking. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of fast and smooth talking. The best addicts are at their essence manipulators. And so I was always in my head back then I was always insightful then, but I directed it to the means of trying to get another high, trying to escape from my mental pain and anguish. And now that that's not part of my narrative and, and at least not anymore, I'm able to take the same energy that I used during my addiction to con, lie, steal, manipulate, do what I had to do to get through the day to do what I have to do to get through the day in a different way. And if I don't reflect that same energy back within myself and peep out what's going on, I'm going to lash out. I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be discontent. I'm just going to be a seething ball of anger and resentment and just uh, like a a rice cooker crock pot ready to just blow up and like expand and froth and foam on everybody else. And I don't want (laughs) to be that. And and I always have that capacity. I always have that capacity to try to think the whole world's against me. And I have my days, you know, even, even though I got, you know, recovery column, recovery show, recovery album, this and that. I work as a recovery advocate. I'm talking with people in the medical field and all that. There are days when I know that I'm not ready to do any of that. And I either have to grin and bear it and wear a smile or I just have to like shut myself off, even for my girlfriend and my dog and take like half an hour and just be like, this is me time because my sensory overload cannot be medicated. I mean, and, and that's OK. But I guess the insight comes from necessity, because if I don't see what's really going on, then how is anybody else supposed to understand me? And, I, and I'm bad at trying to get other people to understand I me. Mean, I'm bad at connecting with people. So, again, it's taking my autistic tendency of being within myself and using it to my advantage. Because I said before that it's hard for me to feel empathy with other people. But the one thing that's super dope about recovery and the recovery community is that even though I'm so different from all these other people, we have a ground line baseline similarity. And that is so comforting to me as someone with my condition, because I know that I have something in common with people. And I know that every single moment I spend analyzing myself, which I would do anyway, that's just the way my mind works. I'm always second guessing myself, always judging myself. But in the context of recovery and mental health and sobriety sense, I'm able to use that over analysis And not have it lead to paralysis have it lead to understanding other people because if I'm able to understand the dynamics of my own behavior, and I'm able to really confront that I can look at other people and understand them better. So now I'm using the very same thing that used to trap me within myself and not understand people because of my autism spectrum deficiencies. I'm not going to say deficiencies just difference it's a neurotypical it's not it's not it's not whatever normal is. Whatever normal is, yeah. eight to eight I'm eight to able to normal, use yeah. that, and I'm able to connect with people by understanding myself and use my experiences as equivalents and analogies to understand their stories. Because they always say in my sobriety fellowship, it's always better to identify with other people than it is to not identify with them. And so, by analyzing my behavior and everything I've been through, I, I can connect with people, and I find that I can connect with people because I understand what they're going through in my own terms.
0: That's awesome. Um, That's actually the perfect segue into the next thing that I wanted to ask you, which is about this pattern making, because you had talked about patterns. So I thought that that this was the perfect way to get into this, because it sounds like this has been, once you figured out the key, that this has been the way you've assimilated yourself into every situation and been able to to keep your sobriety and to keep, your, keep yourself moving in a positive direction. If, if you're willing to describe or whatever it is, however you wanna talk about it, can you talk about this pattern making and how you came up with this?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm gonna sum it up in two words and then expand from there. Everything is connected. I agree. Every sense is connected. When I hear a sound, it's a waveform. Even when you go to a studio, it's a waveform, and that's a visual equivalent of a sonic pattern. So, in that very sense, when you have an MRI or whatever those like um, EKG scans are, those um, not MRI, that's a brain image, but but brainwave patterns. That's not even that's not even a quantifiable thing. I mean, maybe there are electrical impulses, but that's a visual wave. And so in its, in its essence, everything is a synesthetic pattern that's expanding around us. You know, the sound waves of the birds chirping outside, the light waves from the blades of grass, they're all patterns. But then the question is, how do those patterns manifest in our everyday lives? And so for me, I love music because it's a mathematical pattern that crosses an emotional boundary. I love uh, art I because love that, even though art is, I love is the way important. you
0: describe that, man. Sorry to cut you off. I no, love of course. You describe that, man. That was awesome.
1: Thank you. I mean, I, I it's the reality I choose to live in, and and I always tell people they they're like I'm not synesthetic because there are degrees of synesthet- synesthesia awareness, synesthesia blending of the senses, and um, I I say I'll prove to you that you are, and they say how, and I say all right, I want you to think about the Lord of the Rings. And then I want you to think about like a beach scene, like, like the battle scene from the towers where it's raining with all like the, the mystical angry creatures in Lord of the Rings, the second movie. Have you seen that? And they're like, yeah. And or, or Star Wars, like, the, like the, the, the Imperial troops marching in Star Wars. I see you got the, the Yoda creature there from Mandalorian. That's awesome. Shout out, baby Yoda. That's what's up. Um, but so you got the angry Imperial scene, like a battle scene, dark. And then you got like a happy beach scene. You got a black metal Slayer song and you got a Katy Perry, California girls song, which song goes with which vision? And they're always like, well, of course, the black metal song goes with the image of like the, the Lord of the Rings Mordor scene. Of course that California girls song goes with the beach scene. I say, but why is that? Of course, why, why is that? Because you at an inherent level make the connection between a pattern of a certain piece of music going with a certain visual. So that means even if you don't sense it, your senses are connected. And the way that manifests, that synesthetic connection manifests with me is that when I hear a piece, it's an image. And it's not just like, you know, like a, a scene or like a painting. It's a literal like, jigsaw puzzle line in my head. And it's not like a waveform. It's like different chords. If you add a note or take it away, hit my mind in a certain way. And I've become knowledgeable about it, at least on my not in terms of how it impacts other people. I'm not a psychologist. I don't study this professionally. But in my own mind, I have certain chords that I play. And I'm like, that fits with this. And so when I did the pattern thing, when I was growing up, it was like, one two three four five instead of a scale like for example when you do a scale um and it's c d e f g a b c for a c major scale i wouldn't think that i would think one two three one two three four five because that's what my fingers would play and uh, that was my way of understanding a greater pattern than myself and you know using it into my digital in the sense of digits not like technical, but human machine. Because as a pianist, I am one biological machine meeting with another non-biological mechanical machine. And it's not electric, but it is. It's a complex thing. Uh, You hit a key and a lever like, you know, gets a hammer to hit on a string. And it's just like driving a car. And when you're doing that, you have to understand that there are limitations both to your own human instrument and that instrument there. And so you have to be aware of the limitations, you have to be aware of the math, and you have to be aware of the pattern. And so once I understood the pattern of numbering my fingers, I became aware of the patterns of keys, like different modes and different like minor and major stuff. And I, and I mapped them out in my head on my own cognizance and my own way of dealing with it. And it was the same thing as dealing with like, you know, a social environment. And everybody does this. Every my at least my opinion is everybody does this. Everybody maps out social scenes in their head. And another equivalent is you're going to your mother-in-law's house. You have to come up with a system for how to deal with those awkward situations. And people don't think it's a pattern, but you're basing it off of past experiences. You're using it, incorporating it into your worldview, and you're like, How do I how do I respond to this situation? But most people do it unconsciously. And I have had to do it consciously for my entire life. And so I've become very acutely aware of the different dynamics of patterns. And uh, in music, it manifests in if I hear a flow pattern from a rapper I like, if I hear a Chopin piece that I like that, like, you know, does certain, like, you know, obscure intervals in a beautiful way, I'm able to see it in my head and be like, not just I like that, but that's why I like that. I like that because that's the basic four, four pattern in the rap. Then it gets syncopated with triplets. And I really like the way that line looks in my head. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that and I'm going to like switch it and do it in my own way. I really like that Chopin pattern because that augmented fifth leading into that sixth is so beautiful. And I'm able to see it and like map it out with my fingers and all that. So I guess the basic thing is my natural propensity from patterns for patterns comes Comes from a natural impulse to understand the world through my own lens and my own understanding, the same way I did for my social understanding. But what I would say is, everybody sees the world through patterns. It's just a po- it's just a process of becoming conscious of those patterns and understanding how you can become part of the greater pattern because we're all part of the greater pattern. Wow, that's awesome, man!
0: Thank so, you. Now you talk about the greater pattern. When did you discover the greater pattern? Like, when did you discover the the language to say the greater pattern? Was this something that's just been recent or was this like, because obviously you've been doing the pattern thing your whole entire life. So was there a time when the light switched on, so to speak, maybe during your recovery when you were clear enough to think about the patterns or was this something that you were like, was this a tool that maybe had been accessed through your therapy and through your recovery and stuff? Or was this like kind of come to where you came up with this idea of the pattern?
1: I can't take credit for the phrase, the great pattern. That's my uncle. And he's, uh, this, uh, you know, environmental, uh, justice guy. And he's very California, very, very kombucha, very, very Zen. (laughs) And, uh, very whole foods, whatever you want to call it. And he's, he's, um, he's a Christian Buddhist and he's a more than any specific, 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 that's a funny word, more specific, um, manifestation of spirituality. He's just very in tune with himself and he's not as anxious as I am. He's never had a problem with chemicals. He can have a glass, half a half a glass of wine. Imagine that he can, uh, he can take it or leave it. Um, but he's very, he's very in tune with that stuff and he's got his own understanding of the pattern. And he said, when I was, I think nine or 10 years old, he's like, Ben, I can't wait to see the way you manifest yourself in the great pattern. I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought it was just some new age hippie stuff that him and my dad were on as environmental journalists. But as I became older and I played piano more and I, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but addiction is a pattern. It's just a destructive pattern. And I began to see that the different patterns that I chose to involve myself in were either building or destroying There's a great line from one of my favorite rap songs of all time. It's called Exhibit C by Jay Electronica. And it's, you either build or destroy where you come from. And um, I started seeing that. And I started seeing how my different patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, patterns of self-expression, patterns of the way I treated other people were kind of coming back around. And uh, if I chose to live in a certain way, it was reflected in how the universal pattern like... Express itself, and you can call it karma. You can call it judgment from a higher power. Whatever, whatever sits the best with you. I got my own, you know, spiritual understanding and uh, spiritual ritual. But yeah, therapy helped. Uh, but what therapy really helped me do is kind of get out of my own head. Um, it, it allowed me to escape the more—I don't want to say malevolent, but more limiting aspects of my pattern. Because because when I when I get locked into a pattern, it's really a way of understanding the world, and sometimes. I get so locked in like Jim Carrey in the number 23 to like, just so, so obsessed with my understanding that it takes me away from openness. And so a therapist is really, I don't mean to downplay it, but to me it's really nothing more than an informed and compassionate outside perspective that says, maybe you're seeing the pattern wrong and you need to humble yourself down. And that's what the people from our recovery fellowship are. That's what my family, my friends, my coworkers are. Um, I don't have a perfect vision of the pattern. In my more arrogant days, I might think I do, but I'm only one tiny slice of the human experience, man. Like I got my understanding, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. I mean, I mean, a hundred years ago, we didn't even have vaccines. We didn't even have computers. We didn't even have any understanding that like, you know, binary sequences could create like 3d generated models. That was like science fiction. I mean, even 50 years ago with like 2001 a space odyssey that how computer looks like something that's so primitive compared to where we're at today and and i have a tiny glimpse of the pattern and i'm kidding myself if i think i know anything more than that this pattern is so vast and huge but what i will say is yeah therapy and, and recovery have allowed me to understand not just what i know but what i don't know and they've, they've given me a chance to learn how to listen. I'm not good at, I'm a talker, as you can tell. I Once I get started, I don't stop. But they've given me the chance to understand that the only way I can increase my knowledge of the great pattern is by understanding what I don't know as well as what I do.
0: I love how you put that. Because I one thing that I've learned from doing this podcast for the last two years is that the more I learn, the less I know. And I... I, I can relate in so many ways to all the things you're saying, and I don't want to take up all your day. And we always finish up the podcast with three questions, uh, two, two serious, one, not so serious, but serious to me anyway. So I'm going to let Tim ask the first question, man.
2: Do you have a favorite or a least
1: favorite word? I like the word loquacious. Okay. loquacious it's just got a cool shape it's like very very soft very uh, very kind of curvy and What's the uh, defini- what is the definition um easy with the tongue gifted with words very like like someone who's loose loose tongued and kind okay. of uh, effortless like if someone's tipsy at a party or just a, a preacher at a sermon and the words are just coming out of them with effortless ease they're loquacious a a, a gifted conversationalist Okay. And I don't have a least favorite word. I like words of all kinds. Cause even if words like make me uncomfortable or like make me not feel good, that's, that's cool. Like that I'll just be like, kind of put it in that section. That's, that's that word that goes over there. Nice.
0: That's awesome, that's awesome man. Love it. Uh, so my, my favorite question for myself is just cause I, I love animals and animals play such a big part in our lives. So cat dog or other we're all
1: <laughs> I like cats and dogs. Um, you know, and sometimes in my, like, uh, I have a dog, so I guess I'm a dog person. I don't have a cat, but I've had a lot of girlfriends who have cats, friends who have cats, and I love them. I identify them. They're kind of aloof and mystical, and dogs are more kind of, like, open and connected. Oh, my God, like, uh, got to connect with you right now. So that's that, that's kind of more like me. I'm uh, always starved for connection and approval and stuff, so I guess I'm a dog person. But if I had to come up with a favorite animal, man, just because they're so cool, axolotl. You know what axolotl is? No, I do not. <laughs> It's an aqueous Mexican sea salamander. Oh my and gosh. And it literally looks like a cartoon. It's got these like little like not want to say antlers but like things going off the side of its head and it looks like it looks like um, the character Kirby from uh, Nintendo games. It's like little and pink and like cartoonish and and I there, I I just kind of google like funny animals sometimes and I came across this one. It's axolotl. It's like like, a, like Aztec named. It is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm continually amazed by the ways that the pattern expresses itself in animals. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing, man. The axolotl is out there, but I love it.
0: Wow. I'm going to have to look that one up for the show notes just so I can get the spelling. <laughs> right. that, that needs a mention right there.
1: Yeah, the axolotl, man. It's cool.
2: The last question is, if there was something that you could do or you would like to see done, for mental health as a whole without
1: any kind of restraint, what would it be? Well, I could go on an hour long diatribe, but I'm gonna leave it at this. Whether you're talking about addiction or mental health recovery, treatment does not end at the treatment center. And what does that mean? It means you need jobs. It means you need housing. It means you need post-acute care. You need long-term care. You need long-term follow-up. And some states and municipalities are great at this. Some lack the resources. But it can be as simple as just having somebody to talk to and having established, like, you know, anonymous fellowship meetings or, or like, support groups. I'm alive today. Yes, because I had the privilege of going to a wonderful treatment center. But if I had just gone out, not had any safety net, not had anybody helping me, not having anybody willing to give me a place to stay, willing to give me a job, I would have gone back. So whether it's an emotional relapse, a chemical relapse, or, you know, return to, you know, losing all your tools and reconfronting your trauma and having it break you to self-harm or self-destructive patterns, there has to be an understanding of the fact that that mental health and addiction is a lifelong struggle that requires a lifelong community-integrated solution because people who suffer from mental health conditions and addiction all often go together, but even if they don't and they stand by themselves, these are people, and these are people who can contribute to society, but they're people who require, just like a diabetic, just like someone who has hypertension or heart disease or cancer, it requires a health solution that is cognizant of the fact that it has to be holistic. It has to be tied together. Institutions have to work together. People have to give addicts and people who struggle with mental health chances. They have to see them as people and they have to see them as people who have untapped potential that can do positive and creative and awesome things.
0: Wow. Wow. I, that's, that's it, man. Thank you very <laughs> much. Um, can you, you hang out? Can you hang out for a second while we wrap yeah. this up? We fly this thing home. Uh so th- you just heard like I there's no way to add anything to that man it's, it, There isn't.
2: I I the, the I just want to I just want to say one one thing is that I you know when when people really sit down and listen to this I think there's a lot of of intelligent things said and I I think there's uh one thing that really needs to be addressed and 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 understood by many is that you know people often say You don't know what, what someone's going through and you don't know this and you don't know that, so be kind. Or some people say, you know, if they don't respond and that means this, or, and that's not always the case. And I think that lesson was learned in this. I, you know, it's, we're dealing, you're, we were talking with Benjamin who, who, you know, lives with Asperger's and, and, you know, if he sits out and, and looks on, he's not, you know, necessarily a jerk or being, being judgmental. He, he has his own thing. So just let him do it, you know?
1: I'll be over there. I'll be over there. Just let me peep it out for a minute. Let me,
2: (laughs) I get it. No, I get it. I get it. But, but a lot of people are very quick to assuming and judging and saying, well, Oh, you know, he's standing over there with his arms crossed. He must be, you know, this, or she must be that. You know what I mean? It's like enough of that. Just let people do what they want. If they're not harming themselves or you let it go.
1: Absolutely, man. Wise words.
0: Nice. Dude, thank you very much for for being yeah, available thanks. for this, man. It's awesome. I, like I said, um, you can follow Benjamin Lerner on YouTube. You can get his videos on his YouTube channel. Uh, you can get his album Clean on Spotify, Apple Music, or, of course, through BenjaminLerner.com. Um, and you can listen to his radio show every Thursday, man, on WEQX. And if you're in the 518 like we are and you're hearing this on Nippertown, uh, that's 102.7. And EQX does an awful lot in this area, man. There's some great people. Uh, I believe Jason Keller is one of the DJs at EQX still, and like we have a lot of local ties to Vermont. Vermont is like a really close parent, you know, close sibling state to us that we I visit often. So, dude, it was a pleasure meeting you and having you on. So, thank you very much, Tim. Until next time, man. Be well. Be safe. Thanks for having me, y'all be above <laughs> be
3: above <laughs> hey I'm scarred and you're scarred my scars and your scars paint a beautiful picture that tells the story of the journey of your life like the writing on a postcard and if you're scarred inside trying to come to terms with the past and moving on from a broken heart I'll be right there with you I want you to know Listen to my words, and you'll never be alone. I'll be right there. I used to
4: hate all of the scars upon my arms and my face. Used to wish for pure perfection with no mark and no trace of any blemish in my image. Cause it's hard to relate to other people acting shallow, cruel, and heartless and fake. My insecurities got stronger and I started to chase After relief I found a feeling that was hard to replace It left me permanently marked and way so hard to erase That now remind me how I hurt myself and tried to escape It's hard for me to keep it real but I'ma keep it 100 There's a reason why I wear the long sleeves in the summer There's a reason why I edit all my posts and my pictures And change the way I look with filters with control and precision But now I'm walking out the shadows with an honest admission My complexion isn't perfect in its honest condition And I got marks up on my body that were caused from addiction Cause ain't nobody perfect, we all got our flaws and we're different And there's some people who ain't really got no scars on their skin But they'll relate to this cause everyone is scarred from within And some obsess about their weight until they're awfully thin Preoccupied with what some other people possibly think some are scarred from hella trauma they didn't deserve And so they take out all their hatred and resentment with words Or acting different, cause they're so afraid to get themselves hurt That every possible attempt to real affection is curved I'd rather live an ugly truth than live a beautiful lie Because the truth is that my scars are really stupid to hide Cause if somebody doesn't see the inner beauty inside It's cause they're caught up in illusion so the truth gets denied I used to be so damn obsessed with what to do with my scars But truth be told my imperfections my most beautiful part And I'm just proud that there's a part of me that sets me apart, reminding me how far I've managed to progress from the start. I'm scarred, and you're scarred.
3: My scars and your scars. Paint a beautiful picture that tells the story of the journey of your life, like the writing on a postcard. And if you're scarred inside, trying to come to terms with the past and moving on from a broken heart, I'll be right there with you. I
4: want you to know. Listen to my words and you'll never be alone, I'll be right there In this world, people tell us what to do People tell us what to think People tell us what to sound like We even use vocal effects We work so hard just to cover up our scars I think it's time to show the real me So here I am No effects, no filters Just me, scars and all I'm
3: scarred and you're scarred, my scars and your scars Paint a beautiful picture that tells the story of the journey of your life Like the writing on a postcard And if you're scarred inside, trying to come to terms with the past And moving on from a broken heart, I'll be right there with you I want you to know, listen to my words and you'll never be alone I'll be right there